What's up, everyone? Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Adherent Apologetics Show, wherever you are and however you are joining us. Appreciate you for making us a part of your day. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking with Chris Day, where we talk about the question of should Christians rethink hell? We're talking all things annihilationism. Uh, just before we begin, I just want to say, as always, this show is presented by you guys with your support. If you enjoy the show, you can support the show at patreon.com slash adhered apologetics. But with that out of the way, uh, Chris is joining me today. A little bit about Chris. Uh, he's a four theological seminary graduate. Uh, he's behind the platform Rethinking Hell, which challenges the Christian uh, traditional view of hell, which is typically uh, phrased somewhere along the lines of eternal conscious torment. Uh, in this interview, we're going to be talking about annihilationism, uh, why Chris holds to annihilationism, and all, all kinds of fun stuff. So thanks for joining me, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing very well, thanks, and, and it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, of course. I'm really looking forward to this. So just to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, things like that? Sure. Um, I have been married for a little over 20 years, and my wife and I live in the Pacific Northwest in the greater Seattle area with our four sons, ranging in age from 19 at the oldest all the way down to six at the youngest. I am a professional software engineer full-time, so I write computer code, um, but I dream of ch uh, changing careers one day and becoming a professor of Bible and theology at full-time at a seminary or university level. And to that end, um, I uh, got a uh, undergraduate degree from Liberty University in 2017, and then just this month finished my master's degree from Fuller Seminary. And in about a year or so, I hope to do an Old Testament PhD at Cambridge or Oxford. Those are sort of the pie in the sky dream that I've got for, for going to school. In the meantime, I'm doing adjunct professor work at uh, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. It's the seminary um, uh, that Braxton Hunter is the president of and that Jonathan Pritchett is a vice president for academics at. Uh, that's a recent development that I've been that I've joined their their faculty there, uh, and but of all of the things that I'm known for, I think the thing I'm most known for is for being sort of the head of the Rethinking Hell ministry, the, the public face of it anyway. Um, we at Rethinking Hell are conservative evangelicals committed to the inspiration and authority of Scripture. In my case, I'm an inerrantist, so I think the Bible is absolutely without error, and I'm conservative in a, in every imaginable way, uh, except that we at Rethinking Hell are convinced that the Bible very clearly teaches, just about as clearly as it teaches anything, uh, the doctrine known as annihilationism, or, or as we prefer to describe our view, conditional immortality, which is something that we can discuss shortly. Yeah, man, awesome. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Uh, so can you just talk a little bit about, like, what, what, just a little bit of your journey, what kind of, like, what led you to annihilationism? What kind of led you to start, like, rethinking hell? Like, kind of, like, what's the timeline a little bit of, like, how you got to where you are today? Sure. In the late aughts, I think the I think aughts is what we call the 2000s. In the late aughts, I began a podcast um, called The Apologetics. It was uh, you just sort of take the word theology and the word apologetics and you smash them together. And that was my podcast, The Apologetics. Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing uh, a number of shows and I was having guests on, some of whom shared my views, others of whom did not, but whose views were secondary issues over which Christians can legitimately disagree. And um, at one point in the course of the history of my podcast, I had a gentleman by the name of Edward Fudge on my show to discuss the Churches of Christ um, so that uh, uh, listeners could get a better idea of 
the difference between sort of the sectarian baptismal regeneration uh, churches of Christ versus the more ecumenical, um, you know, thoroughly evangelical uh, churches of Christ. And And when I was having him on the show, I had also learned that he was that he had just published the third edition of what is now the definitive work in defense of annihilationism called The Fire That Consumes. And I had a f- couple of friends who held to this view, and I was curious. Mind you, I ha- so I had been a Christian for about 10 years by this point, and during none of that time did I ever have any sort of emotional or philosophical concerns about the doctrine of hell. I didn't, I wasn't kept up at night. I didn't lose sleep or anything like that. And being, I- I'm a Calvinist, I'm Reformed, and and so I'm especially committed to the to to the belief that whatever God says He will do is is right and just. And um and, and it didn't, I didn't question that. I didn't have any problem with it. But in the when I found out that he had published this book, and because at the time I just assumed this was a secondary, a, a non-essential over which Christians could disagree, I decided to have him on the show to talk about that um, in a follow-up to the Churches of Christ discussion. And in the process of uh, preparing for and conducting that interview, I found that I was being dragged, kicking and screaming to the fence um, because of the power of his biblical arguments. And when I interviewed him, I spent the whole first hour getting to know him and letting him lay out sort of a positive case. I found it compelling. And then I spent the next second hour throwing every imaginable challenge I could throw at him. Probably every single one you're going to challenge me with today, I threw at him <laughs> and more. And when all was said and done, I was like, I, I'm thoroughly on the fence. I can't think of any reason to continue hold on, holding on to the traditional view, but I wanted to take some time. And so over the months that followed after that, I um, watched a bunch of sermons and read a bunch of books and articles and moderated a debate or two and even participated in my own debate. And by this must have been 2011, somewhere in the middle of 2011, I, I was thoroughly convinced and was invited to be a part of this new ministry, Rethinking Hell, and the rest is sort of history. So the, the main thing I want to get across here is the reason why I'm an annihilationist is because I think that the scriptures teach nothing clearer or almost nothing more clearly than it does teach annihilationism. And I didn't want to accept it. As we're going to talk about later in the interview, I think it, I, uh, I knew it would make me something of a pariah and that I would lose friends and I would lose ministry opportunities and things like that. So I didn't want to accept it, um, but I'm too firmly committed to the authority and reliability of the scriptures. And so I had to sort of bend my knee to scripture, even though I knew it was going to, it was going to cost me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Lots of, lots of interesting stuff. I should say, welcome, William, William, Corinth, Roxby, everyone who's joining us in the live chat. Um, something really interesting, Chris, uh, there's a couple of you, uh, Dr. Randall Rouser, you really introduced me into this idea. I remember probably like a few years ago, if you asked me about annihilationism, I kind of put it in like, oh, you know, there's like universalism in that same category. It was like this fringe belief that I, I thought didn't make sense. But the truth is, that's because I really never looked into these things. Um, and I, I think what you're doing is really interesting. I mean, I'm not here as like some like person who's like committed to the doctrine of something like eternal conscious torment and being like, I'm here to expose. I honestly don't know. And that's why I love talking to people like you. Yeah, I like learning as I try to figure these things down. So um, yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So just to start off, can you talk a little bit like, if someone was asked, Chris, what, what's this doctrine of annihilationism? What, what is annihilationism? Well, let me start um, by first defining conditional immortality, because um, what I would argue is that annihilationism is one part of the larger view that we at Rethinking Hell promote, which is conditional immortality. And in order to understand what that is, you've got to understand first what the traditional view of hell is. So 
all Christians um, who are genuine Christians believe in the future bodily resurrection of the dead, not just the saved, but also the lost. So um, just as you and I are embodied and breathing and we've got blood pumping and everything right now, that's going to happen again long after we've died. We'll be brought back to life. And so will the lost. Um, and we all agree with that. We also all agree that when that resurrection happens, those of us who are saved will be made immortal. It's part of what's called glorification. So we'll be given glorified bodies that includes this property of immortality or, or, or everlasting life, living physically forever, right? Um, but this is where this view, conditional immortality, and the other views, eternal torment and universalism, part ways. Because both the doctrines of eternal torment and universalism both believe that when the dead are raised, all humankind will be made immortal, will be made bodily immortal. I'm not saying they'll be, they think they'll have glorified bodies, but they do think that those bodies of the lost, when they are raised, will be made immortal and will live forever physically in hell. Um, the doctrine of eternal torment is not one of disembodied souls suffering forever. It's resurrected immortals living physically forever. So you could say that eternal torment and universalism are universal unconditional immortality views. By contrast, the doctrine of conditional immortality says that only those who meet a specific condition will be made immortal when they are raised from the dead, and that condition is the condition of being saved. So that's why it's called conditional immortality. Those who meet the condition of being saved will be raised immortal, and that's, well, that's the saved. So, the, so then the question becomes, well, what's going to happen to those who aren't saved and they're raised from the dead to be judged? Well, we argue that the Bible indicates that they will be raised still mortal, every bit as mortal as you and I are right now. And because they're still mortal, they will be able to die, and their second, their, their, their judgment, their punishment will, in fact, be death, physical death, um, uh, ordinary death. It's not special code language. It's actual death. The wicked will literally die a second time. That's why the Bible calls it the second death. And the reason why it would be why you can call that uh, that fate annihilation is because if human beings have immaterial souls that remain conscious after the first death, when those souls are reunited with resurrection bodies of the lost, both the bodies and the souls of the wicked will be completely destroyed in the second death. And so they will come to an end altogether. And that's why it's called annihilationism. But again, for us, the reason why conditional immortality is a more appropriate phrase is because our convictions about the annihilation of the wicked um, result from, they're an outworking of what are what we think the Bible says about life and immortality and the eschaton and you know glorification and all of that. Annihilation is just sort of an outworking of that. Yeah, a lot of new stuff here. So can you talk a little bit about like uh, kind of your journey to, um, into annihilationism, I guess, into, into believing this doctrine? Like I know you talked about you had this podcast um, with this guy who kind of made you start to think a little bit about this idea and this doctrine. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what convinced you of this doctrine of annihilation? What are some of the key biblical texts you look at and you're like, this shows me that uh, I believe in annihilationism? So what convinced me that more than anything else, and if anybody's watching your show right now that has watched me do more than, say, five interviews, they'll have heard me say this phrase on a number of occasions. I've kind of got it down by heart. But the phrase is, what convinced me more than anything else was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically, historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality and annihilationism. And I mean that with all sincerity. So for example, the first text that I that, that started to get me wondering 
was when I was in a conversation with my friend Glenn Peoples. We were both part of a we, we were contributors to a ministry called the Preterist Podcast. We are both what goes what go by the term, phrase partial preterists. And we were um, in a discussion as part of this ministry. And somehow this topic of hell came up. And I said, uh, what about Mark 948, where Jesus says their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched? You know, I'd been trained like a good evangelical to think that what that language means is that the wicked will suffer forever in fire, right? That the fires will never die out because the, the lost will forever provide fuel to the fire and the worms will never die because they'll forever have the living bodies of the wicked to feed on or something like that. Nobody can really spell it out because it's not what that language means in the first place. But those are sort of the inklings that I had. But my friend, Glenn, he told me, go and look at what Jesus is quoting. Um, and he pointed me to Isaiah 66, 24, which is the text that Jesus is quoting there. And what I discovered is, oh, Isaiah literally explicitly calls the things that the worms and fire are consuming corpses, dead bodies. Um, and not just any old dead bodies, but if you go back even earlier in Isaiah 66 to verses 14, 15, somewhere around there, it's the corpses of God's slain enemies. So the picture is of God slaying his enemies and their dead corpses are being eaten up by maggots and they're being burned up by fire. And if you look at how that those idioms are used throughout scripture, it, it has to do with uh, unabated, irresistible consumption, destruction. So take, for example, uh, unquenchable fire. If you got a phone call while you were at work and a fireman told you you need to rush home because your house is on fire and you get home 30 minutes later and you arrive and your house has been reduced to smoldering rubble. Imagine if the fireman came up to you and said, hey, congratulations, we quenched your fire. Well, no, they didn't quench the fire. They failed to quench the fire. And that's exactly why it's completely burned down to nothing but rubble. Um, that's the what the expression unquenchable fire means in scripture and it's similar with undying worm. And so I realized, wow, that text not only does not challenge annihilationism, it's actually better support for it than for the traditional view. And what I found is that Matthew 25, 41 and 46 does the same thing. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 does the same thing. Um, Revelation 14, 9 to 11, Revelation 20, 10 to 15, uh, Daniel 12, 2, every single text with the exception of one, and that's why I say virtually no exception, every single text proves to be better support for conditionalism and annihilationism. The one text that doesn't, that has been historically used as support for eternal torment, doesn't have anything to do with hell in the first place. And, and if, if, if you're going to stick mostly to the questions that you sent me, we'll get to that text. So I'll, I, I won't let the cat out of the bag just yet. <laughs> but that's in a nutshell what happened for me. Um, there's a lot of reasons, tons of biblical, theological, philosophical reasons for holding to this view. But the one thing more than anything else was that every single one of these texts it was like falling dominoes. Not only were they not a challenge to annihilationism, but they were actually much better support for annihilationism than for eternal torment. Yeah, before we go into some of these passages, I'm curious, uh, in the beginning you talked about how you, you're reformed, you hold to like a Calvinistic view. Like This doctrine of annihilationism, how common is it among people who would share like a similar reformed uh, doctrine set as, as you do? It doesn't strike me as very common, uh, and, the, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that a significant percentage of us Reformed folk, uh, us Calvinists, 
are also confessional, meaning we um, we either attend confessional reformed churches, whether Presbyterian or Baptist, or we just really believe in what is laid out in, say, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And both of those confessions have a statement or two or three that are explicit support for eternal torment. And so if you challenge yeah. that, you're not just challenging the traditional view of hell, you're challenging the accuracy of these reformed, uh, these these well-respected con uh, reformed confessions. So that's one reason. Now, mind you, conditionalism actually fits other statements in those confessions better, but we can talk about that another time. The other reason why I think that Cal uh, Calvinists aren't, are, are far less common to be annihilationists than non-Calvinists is because um, Calvinists are, I think for, for one reason or another, we are very sensitive to um, to what appear to us to be attempts to subject scripture to the, our own whims or to the spirit of the age. And so anytime you get somebody who tries to change scripture in order to, to because it seems like they're just trying to make the gospel more palatable to the world, um, let's say they want to try to argue that the Bible is okay with homosexuality or that the Bible is okay with egalitarianism, meaning, you know, women can be pastors and elders, or, or whether it's because they want to argue that the Bible uh, is actually contains errors. It's not inerrant for any of these reasons or others. Very often we Calvinists think our gut reaction is, oh, the reason you're presenting this alternative view is because you're just trying to make, you're just trying to appease culture, right? Um, and I can understand why a lot of Calvinists would immediately jump to the conclusion that that's go what's going on with this issue, right? So many people object to the doctrine of eternal torment. So many um, atheists cite the doctrine of eternal torment as a big reason why they're not Christian. Mm -hmm. And so the assumption is somebody like me comes around and, oh, you're just trying to make the gospel more, you know, less offensive to the unbelieving world or something like that. And I get that. I, I understand that, that sentiment, but um, it's just not the case. It's, it's, it's just simply a misapprehension. So I think those are the reasons that best explain why most Calvinists aren't, don't hold to this view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, so before we get into some specific objections, can you just point out if you say like uh, that someone who's really never looked into the kind of annihilationism, what are the two or three texts you would specifically point them to just as like kind of like a starter into understanding this doctrine? Well, um, firstly, I would point them to two of the most uh, famous texts in all of Scripture. One, definitely the most famous text of Scripture, which is John 3.16. You know, um, Jesus there, or possibly John, it's not absolutely clear whether it's Jesus speaking there or whether it's John narrating, says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not be immortal and suffer forever in hell. Wait, 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 sorry, I got that wrong. <laughs> God, did, God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And if there were any question about what perish means, just go back one verse earlier, two verses earlier, because Jesus had just talked about this the statue, the serpent, the snake statue that Moses had. And when the Israelites were bitten by otherwise venomous, uh, fatally venomous snakes, the Israelites could look at that statue and they, their lives would literally be saved. The, you know, the, the, the perish there isn't code language. It literally means to die. Um, and Jesus is, you know, the gospel is literally a life and death issue. That's that's what John 3.16 indicates, contrary to the doctrine of eternal torment. Uh, and then the other one I was going to mention was Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Again, if you want to know what Paul means by death, just go ahead one or two verses. Because in the very next verses, um, at the very beginning of chapter 7, and, my, and, you know, there weren't chapter divisions in the original, so we're just talking two verses later, Paul makes clear what he means by death there. He says that if a woman's husband dies... 
she's free to remarry. So death there in, in the wages of sin is death is not code language. It's ordinary, literal death. So that's one set of texts I would point them to is texts that they probably already have memorized and maybe have not even really thought much about. The other text I think I might um, point them to, I'll, I'll give you two more. One is a pair, and then the third one is just a single individual text. The second pair of texts I'll give you are literally the bookends of Scripture. So if you look at Genesis 3, right around verse 21, I think it is, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden for an explicit purpose. It's so that man can't reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So by kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, what God accomplishes is there is he revokes their access to the tree of life. And because they don't have access to the tree of life, they eventually die. At the other end of scripture, in Revelation chapter 22, that tree of life reappears. It's there again, but only the saved have access to its fruit. So you've got both bookends of the Bible telling you that only the saved are going to have access to enduring life. And then the last text I'll give you uh, is uh, Matthew 10, 28. So in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear men who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear God who can just, well, fear the one. Scholars agree it's God, uh, except for N.T. Wright, who's kind of a weirdo on this topic. But they agree that, um, God, that Matt, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And what's critical about this is that the word translated destroy, when used in the way it's used here, meaning in the active Greek voice and transitively to describe what one person does to another, when it's used in that way, everywhere in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it means slay or kill. It's an emphatic way of saying kill. So what Jesus is saying is don't fear men fear God, because what men can't do, which is kill the soul, God can do. He can utterly slay the soul. So you look at a body that's dead, you see an inert, inanimate, inactive, lifeless corpse. In the first death, according to this text, that's not something that also happens to the soul, but it is something that happens to the soul in the second death. So those are a good couple of passages to get people started if they're intrigued. Yeah, uh, so let's let's go into some objections here. Uh, we'll probably go through some of the most common verses that uh, I know you've, talked, you've tackled before, and a lot of people would say, "Hey, wait, 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 wait this supports the eternal kindness torments." We're gonna kind of go through some of these passages. I'll I'll just start reading. Uh, first one we'll read through is Matthew twenty-five, forty-five through forty-six. Uh, my reading is gonna be the English Standard Version. Uh, it says, "Then he then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to do it to one of the least of these.'" You did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I think a lot of people would look at this text and say that eternal life is being compared to eternal punishment. So hell must be eternal in some sense. There'd be probably a common argument. So how do you how do you look at this passage? Well, first of all, let me just make, be really clear. I do think the punishment's eternal. This is a common mis misconception. Annihilation isn't a temporary punishment. It's not a finite punishment. It's an everlasting one. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment. But before I get to that, just consider what the alternative to eternal punishment is. It's eternal life. It's right there in the text. So, so by definition, whatever the eternal punishment is, it can't be everlasting life. And yet that's precisely what the doctrine of eternal torment says the resurrected wicked will get is everlasting life. So right off the bat, this, this text already favors my view. But let me unpack the eternal punishment a little bit more. You see, it's absolutely true that both the nouns 
um, life and punishment, zoe and colossus, both of those nouns are described using the same adjective ionios, meaning eternal. So you do have a parallel in duration, but you've also got a contrast. You know, the, the, these are two um, mutually exclusive fates, zoe, life, colossus, punishment. So, so traditionalists, people who believe in the uh, traditional view of eternal torment, like to very often say there's this parallel, eternal life, eternal punishment, and they're absolutely right, but it's only half right because it's also a contrast. The punishment must not in include life. Well, what punishment doesn't include life? Death. And by death, I don't mean the process of dying. I mean the, resulting pro the result of the process, not having life anymore. So if that punishment, the not having life at all, lasts forever, if the wicked are killed and they never, ever, ever live again, their punishment, the, the deprivation of their life, lasts forever. It is, by defin definition, an everlasting punishment. And only annihilationism can, take, uh, can account for both the eternal punishment um, phrase and the fact that that eternal punishment must not include eternal life. Hmm. Okay, uh, let's keep on going. There's a few more passages that we want to look at here. The next one comes from Luke 16. We have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus. Oh, my gosh, my pronunciation is terrible today. I apologize. Uh, so I'll read verses 22 uh, through 23, and we'll just kind of give you thoughts on this passage. So it says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So I think... I think people who would believe in the hold to a eternal conscious torment perspective here, they would say that you, you see this, the rich man who he's in Hades currently in torment, he hasn't been annihilated. So how do you look at this passage, Chris? Well, so remember I said a little bit ago that there's one exception to that rule that I gave. Um, all the other texts that are historically cited prove to be better support for the view I have now. This is the one exception. And the reason is because it doesn't have anything to do with hell in the first place. You see, believers in eternal torment sometimes assume wrongly that if you believe in annihilationism, what that means is you think that the instant a, a, a person dies, they vanish, they're gone forever. But that's not. But that's not what we believe. We believe that the resurrected, the wicked, will one day be resurrected. And annihilationists, conditionalists, are mixed. We're diverse when it comes to what we think happens to human beings between death and resurrection. So there are many annihilationists, um, including church fathers like Irenaeus of Lyon, who were annihilationists, are, are annihilationists, but who think that human beings have immaterial souls that remain conscious in death. And it's, you know, if that's what, if, if Luke 16 and the story of Lazarus and the rich man is, is either an actual historical narrative, which is sometimes argued because the name Lazarus is there, um, or if it's a parable uh, or something like that, but, it, but it's realistic, meaning that even though it isn't, didn't really happen, it still nevertheless realistically depicts the intermediate state. Either way, um, it's all about that intermediate state. And you know that because number one, the, the dead, uh, the rich man and Lazarus are both said to have died and been buried. And it said, and the scene is explicitly said to take place in Hades. And if that weren't enough, the rich man pleads with Abraham to let Lazarus go from rise from the dead and warn the rich man's still living brothers. Now, when hell, when hell happens, when people are thrown into hell, there's nobody going to be walking around blissfully unaware of their impending doom. Right. This this scene can only happen in the intermediate state before resurrection unto judgment. So the short answer to your question is just it isn't about hell at all in the first place. So it's utterly irrelevant to this debate. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll keep going through some objections here. I, I, we'll go to Revelations 14. Uh, uh, so Revelation. Singular. Revelation. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Those of us who are biblical scholars, we get driven. We're, we're driven. We, it drives us nuts when people say revelations plural. So I just, yeah. <laughs> no, man, you're good. I, I, I appreciate it. No one's actually ever corrected me doing that before. So I, I learned something new today. I appreciate there it. There you go. <laughs> um, in addition to obviously all this annihilationism stuff, very fascinating stuff here we're going through here. Uh, so I'll read verse 11 here, uh, Revelation 14, 11. It says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, so I think some people would look at this passage and say that it talks about uh, these people who worship worshipers of the beast in his image. They're having this e eternal tor torment, it seems like. It says their torment goes on forever and ever. So how do you look at this passage? Uh, I think they're right to say that that is what the text is portraying or describing. But that is fairly irrelevant. And here's why. The book of uh, Revelation, uh, in particular from about chapter 4 till halfway through chapter 22, is uh, part of a genre called apocalyptic literature. And this is, um, in this kind of literature, a visionary or a seer or a prophet sees... Um, images, symbols that represent what's going to happen in the future. So for example, um, many of your uh, viewers right now will be familiar with the time when Joseph was in prison because Potiphar's wife lied about him and said that he tried to sexually assault her or whatever. And so Potiphar sent Joseph to prison. He interpreted some dreams there and then Pharaoh called uh, Joseph out to interpret his dream. And here's what happened. And this is in Genesis 40-ish, uh, somewhere around there. Um, uh, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh has this dream in which seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile and then seven sickly cows come up out of the Nile after them and eat the first seven healthy cows. Now, imagine if that's what Revelation described. Can you imagine anybody saying, oh, that means we can expect in the future for these these 14 apocalyptic cows to show up on the scene, right? No, nobody would say that because it's obviously symbolism. And Joseph tells Pharaoh it's symbolism. He says the seven cows are seven years, all right? Yeah. Um, and you see this in the dreams that he interprets while he's in prison. You see it in the dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. You see it in Daniel's own dreams, and you see it here in John. So for example, in Revelation 17 or 16, um, John's uh, angel tells him the seven heads of the beast are seven kings. Five have fallen, one now is, and the seventh is yet to come. So, um, so they, so the, in the, in these, uh, in these visions, the things in the, the things the seer sees in the imagery are symbols representing something in reality. Now, with that in mind, we have at least three symbols in this text. We've got, if, if you go back to verse nine and read all th through nine through eleven, you have uh, them. You're, they're said to drink God's wrath. Uh, they're said to be tormented in fire and sulfur, and then the smoke of their torment rises forever. Now, what's important to note is that all three of those symbols are used again elsewhere in this book. So if we can go to that place in the book and see how those symbols are used and what they mean, shouldn't that give us an idea of what they mean here? Probably. 
So let's go look at Revelation 18 and 19, where all three of those symbols are used. In chapter 18, the woman is, is, is uh, the church is, is told to make her drink. Okay, so she's drinking God's wrath. Um, several times she's explicitly said to be tormented in fire. And mind you, this, this she I'm talking about is Mystery Babylon. She's, she's this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of this seven-headed, ten-horned beast. So it's obviously, you know, this bizarre, perplexing imagery. Um, she's tormented in fire multiple times in chapter 18. She's made to drink God's wrath. And then at the beginning of chapter 19, a chorus cries out, Hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. So all three of those symbols are used. But what does this imagery of this harlot being tormented in fire and smoke rising forever from her torment mean? Well, an angel tells John what it means toward the end of chapter 18. He says, the great city, that, that is the city that this harlot represents, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So all of this imagery, smoke rising forever, drinking God's wrath, um, uh, being tormented in fire and sulfur, this is imagery communicating utter destruction, um, the, especially this, this rising smoke. Uh, it, it's, it's the equivalent of, of what we moderns would think in our heads if we see a mushroom cloud. Right. Our first thought when we see a mushroom cloud is does not go to like the mechanics of a nuclear bomb or this of what happened on the ground. Our first thought is absolute devastation, absolute obliteration. Mm. And rising smoke was the same thing. So if you go back to Isaiah 34.10, uh, the city of Edom is turned into pitch and smoke rises from it forever. In Genesis 19, when, so when uh, the Lord rains down fire from heaven uh, onto Sodom and Gomorrah and it slays their inhabitants, Abraham then goes out and looks at smoke rising from the plains. So this is all imagery communicating utter destruction. Yes, in the vision itself, these beast worshipers are tormented forever and ever. But the question is, what does that symbol mean? And when you do this hard work that we've just done, you see that it means annihilation. It means obliteration, extinction, destruction. Hmm. It's really interesting stuff, man. A lot of food for thought here. Uh, let's go to another passage in Revelation 20. Uh, I'm going to read verse chapter 20, uh, verses 10, verse 10, where it says, Revelation 20, verse 10. Got to get that Jordan to my head, you know. <laughs> um, so it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So um, here in this passage, it seems like you have like the devil here being, and being thrown into torment for, for forever and ever. So from your perspective, how do you look at this passage in Revelation? Well, so remember, I've already said, yes, in the vision, in the thing that John sees, um, beast worshippers are tormented forever and ever. In this part of the vision, the devil, a seven-headed, ten-horned beast, is tormented forever and ever. Excuse me. And this two-headed, a uh, two-horned beast called the false prophet is tormented forever and ever. But they're not the only things thrown into that uh, into that lake of fire. Um, death and Hades are also thrown into that lake of fire. And in the vision, death and Hades are conscious beings. They're the fourth horsemen of the apocalypse from back in Revelation six. You know, there's the red horse and the pale horse or whatever. Well, the last horse is uh, the last horseman is death, and Hades follows after him. So these conscious entities, death and Hades, are thrown into the lake of fire in just a few verses after the one you read after they give up their dead so the dead are raised and then death and hades are thrown into the lake of fire and if we're going to treat the imagery consistently then these being these horsemen death and hades are also tormented forever and ever but what does that symbolism mean well just a few verses later in revelation 21 4 god says hathanatas uk esti eti death shall be no more 
And this is consistent with what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 15, where he said, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Destroyed translates the Greek word katargeo, which means to cease to happen. So death will no longer happen uh, is what death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire symbolizes. It symbolizes their annihilation. And if there were any doubt about, and, and, and so therefore the other things thrown into the lake of fire are annihilated as well in reality, even though what takes place in the imagery is ongoing torment. And if there were any doubt that what I'm saying is true, you can just look at how John and God interpret this lake of fire. Because remember, we talked a moment ago about um, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And he says, the seven cows are seven years, right? So X is Y. X in the imagery is Y in reality. Well, look at what John says in Revelation 20, 14, and what God says in Revelation 21, 8. The, they say, both of them say the lake of fire is the second death. Now, this is really important for two reasons. Number one, whenever biblical interpreters interpret bizarre imagery like this, the whole reason that the interpretation even works as interpretation is because you're taking perplexing, highly symbolic language and you're offering its meaning in plain language. If you didn't, it wouldn't even, I mean, imagine if I tried to say the seven cows are um, uh, 18 stars in the sky or something like that. And, and, and what it was really talking about was seven years. Well, I've not interpreted for you. I've just given equally perplexing language. Right. Only if the interpretation makes plain what is hidden in the perplexing imagery does it even function as interpretation. So what would the second death plainly mean? Dying a second time. But there's another another thing here. Um, the phrase second death appears. John didn't come up with it on his own. Um, the there's a there are uh, Hebrew. The Hebrew Bible was translated into Aramaic um, around this time frame. And the, the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament are called the Targums. And the phrase second death appears in multiple places in the Targums. In fact, in, in at least one of the places, it appears along with Gehenna, which is the word that Jesus uses to describe hell. And wherever this phrase, phrase second death appears in the Targums, it means literally dying a second time in the eschaton and never again partaking in life. So in every imaginable way, Revelation 20 is support for annihilationism. Death and Hades being thrown at a lake of fire symbolizes their annihilation. So everything else you would think, you know, should be annihilated as well in reality. The phrase second death as the interpretation of the perplexing imagery means literally dying a second time. And the phrase second death was used in exactly that way in the Aramaic Targums leading up to the time of John. Um, there's literally no reason to take it in the way that the doctrine of eternal torment takes it. Not a one. Good stuff, man. Uh, we'll go through one more whole passage here that would be commonly used against your view and we'll kind of dive into some more philosophical objections things like that uh so in matthew 26 24 uh jesus says the jews it says that or sorry, the, the bible the passage in matthew says that judas would have been better off if he had never been born um but if annihilationism is true and Ju and judas is just annihilated after um he faces judgment why does it say that in this passage well, first of all, I, don't, I can't relate to anybody who uses the phrase just annihilated. That'd be like saying that when a criminal goes to the electric chair and is fried to death, they're just killed. I mean, that's absurd. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's my bad. Uh, no, it's all right. You, you, it's, it's natural. This is what we do when we're believers in eternal torment. We use weird language to describe our opponent's views. Um, so I get it. I did the same thing before I believed in this view. But but it doesn't make sense to me now why I ever did and why people still do. But here, here's the thing. There are at least two reasons why that text is perfectly consistent with this view. Firstly, um, 
the, the we moderns like to pretend as if we really don't care much how people think about us after we're dead. But we do. And that's why so many of us uh, picture what our funeral is going to be like. It's it's very common. I've done it. I, I You probably have done it or maybe you're a little too young, but you'll get there. Don't worry. Um, uh, but, but, but even if we didn't or even if we don't care, the people of Israel cared. The people of the ancient Near East cared. They cared deeply how they would be remembered after they were gone. And somebody would much rather be have never been born um, and never be thought of again than to than to sell, to betray the very Messiah, God incarnate, into the hands of his murderers, um, and 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 then kill himself by hanging himself and having his body spill out on the ground um, after the branch breaks and stuff. Um, they would have much rather, uh, and then after doing that, to be as the person who sold the Messiah, God incarnate, into the hands of the oppressors, or into his, into his um, um, it would be like being remembered forever the way that we think of when we think of Hitler. Nobody thinks of Hitler. Well, maybe some people think of Hitler in long terms, but most of us don't. We think of him in really abject contempt. Hey, Chris, I think your mic is cutting out a little bit. It's a little uh, choppy, or maybe it's just on my end. I think it might be on your end because I'm here. Okay, if you guys are listening, just let me know if you can move first time. It definitely could be on my end. Just keep on going. Okay. Well, hopefully your um, listeners. My, my internet connection is pretty good, so I, I don't think for me. But anyway, okay. um, because he, uh, he, he, he don't care how we remember Judas did, and it would have been much better for him to have never been born than to have done everything he did and then be remembered forever. But there's another reason why uh, it's really consistent with this view. And that's because it's not just talk. There's no reason to think that all it's talking about is what happens after the sentence is meted out in hell. Think about all the things that happened to Judas. He not only sold the Messiah into the hands of the traitors or into his murderers. He also felt extreme shame, so much so that he tried to give the money back, and they laughed at him and refused to take it. Um, he was so ashamed of it that he hung himself, killed himself. And then his body fell open and broke out, fell down and broke open on the ground. Some two thousand or more years later, he's going to be raised. He's going to face the God whose son he sold into the hands of his murderers. He's going to be declared guilty in front of all of humankind, including people that he respected and cared about, and who are now going to look at him in abject contempt. And then he's going to be—he's um, going to face the knowledge that he's not going to partake in resurrection life. He's not going to be—he's uh, not going to partake in the age to come, and he's going to be violently and painfully killed, forever to be remembered in contempt. All of that happened is indeed worse than if he'd never been born, even though all of that will have happened in the past after he's been annihilated. So. Even if you don't accept the shame argument that I mentioned before, you still got the situation that to say it's the same in the end is to ignore everything that happened between his betrayal and his final annihilation. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, from what the live chat said, I think the issue was on your side with the mic cord, like your quality and your camera and everything is good. So just maybe just your mic cord that's still in the live chat said. Okay, well, I've just plugged it oh. back in. Hope Is this better perfect. now? Yeah, everything's perfect now. Awesome. 
Good stuff, man. Uh, so let's dive into some other objections here as we start to uh, round third because for some reason I'm stuck on baseball analogies right now. Um, so one of the common things that uh, is brought up against you, I know Ross Burns, you're actually going to be debating here in a few days. He brought this up, and it's an interesting objection. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And this idea of uh, divine justice in a sense, how is it fair uh, for someone like, let's just say, Hitler to – who committed so much evil and responsible for the death of so many people um, for him to just uh, commit suicide. And then at some point he's, he's going to face annihilation annihilationism. Like, is that a, some people would say that's not a fair punishment for someone who did something so evil. So how do you look at that objection? Well, uh, before I answer that question, I'll just say I don't see how justice is ever done in Ross's view, in the in the view of eternal torment, because at any given point into future eternity, after trillions of trillions, trillions and trillions of years of torment, guess how much torment there's still left to dole out in eternal torment? Trillions and trillions and trillions of more years. So justice is never satisfied in the doctrine of eternal torment. So Ross can throw that objection to me if he wants, but he's kind of shooting himself in the foot. He's, he's cutting off the, the branch he's sitting on. But to more directly answer your question, um, firstly, uh, governments all across the world and all throughout human history have reserved for the most heinous of crimes the death penalty. So to say that somebody needs something even worse than death is to ignore the universal human experience in terms of justice when it comes to what the most heinous of crimes is punished with. Secondly, the, 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 the death penalty, even though the various means by which the death penalty is meted out all inflict the same punishment, namely death, nevertheless, they vary greatly in how that the experience of dying is experienced. So somebody who dies in by lethal injection re experiences a relatively painless and a peaceful death. Um, scientists question just how painless and s peaceful it is, but it's certainly nothing like being fried to death on the electric chair. It's certainly nothing like being shot to death on the um, in the firing squad. It's certainly nothing like being burned to death on a stake. It's certainly nothing like being stoned to death. It's certainly nothing like being crucified on a cross and spending hours on it before dying, right? So um, somebody, you know, the little old lady down the street who is an unbeliever and has sinned but hasn't done anything even coming close to what Hitler has done, maybe she will be killed in a relatively peaceful and painful way relative to Hitler, whose death might be something much more protracted and painful like what Jesus experienced on the cross. Um, th these are all possibilities uh, that can account for that. But here's what I want to push back on this argument. We don't get to tell God what's just. Yeah. I don't care what Ross says. I love him. I don't care what he says. I don't care what, uh, what anybody else says about death not being severe enough for Hitler. They don't get to decide that. God gets to decide that. And he's told us in scripture, not only that the wages of sin is death, but that if you violated any of the law, you violated the whole of it. So I think it's possible that we make a little bit too much out of the differences between, say, the little old lady down the street and Hitler, because they've both violated one, one aspect of the law at least. And so therefore they have violated the whole of it. And maybe the disparity between their sinfulness isn't as much as we sinners would like to think it is. Hmm. Yeah, some really interesting stuff, and I do agree. I love Ross too. It's really, I'm really looking forward to that debate. Me in too. A few days. Hopefully, it'll be a better debate than his debate with the Catholic. Um, <laughs> that was uh, when I, you know, way too much time on historical things. I, I think, I think the debate between Ross and me will be much more interesting to your viewers. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward. Yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out. That I believe is on Tuesday at 7.30 Eastern time or 6.30 Eastern time. I have to check that out. Um, but yeah, I'll see you guys hopefully on Tuesday. Uh, another question for you is what, what do you think annihilationism is such a minority position? Obviously, you're very confident in your beliefs. You're confident that's what scripture teaches. So if that's true, what, why do you think that not many people hold to an annihilationism position on this yeah. debate? I think there are a few reasons. The first and most ancient reason is the stamp of approval that St. Augustine um, stamped the doctrine of eternal torment with in the um, in the 6th century, 5th century, whatever it was that he was alive. You see, prior to that point, in fact, the earliest church fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the writer of the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon in the, in the latter half of the 2nd century, these were all conditionalists, these were annihilationists. And then in the late 2nd century, alongside Irenaeus, you had people who believed in eternal torment like Athenagoras and Tatian. So now you start to get, you're getting some diversity and you go a little bit later and you get Origen who's universalist. So now you've got all three views vying for, comp, you know, competing for the hearts of the church all at the same time. And when Augustine put his stamp of approval on the doctrine of eternal torment, his justifiable influence, I think, propelled the doctrine of eternal torment into dominance. And it's been that way ever since. So that's mm. the most ancient reason, but there are, there are, um, much more contemporary reasons. So for example, the doctrine of annihilationism of conditional immortality was extremely popular in America and Europe in the 1800s. Um, and I'm not talking about amongst cults. Um, I'm talking about Christians, conservative Christians on both sides of the Atlantic. A lot of them held to this view. But what happened is there were also liberals and modernists and cultists and things who held to this view as well. Mm. And so right on the cusp of the, the, the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, you had what was called the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The fundamentalists were trying to sort of circle the wagons around conservative Christianity against what they saw, saw as sort of this onslaught from liberalism, modernism, and so forth. And so they defined these fundamentals of the faith. And it just so happened they thought that it was liberals who were denying the reality of eternal torment. So fundamentalist, you know, one of the fundamentals is the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, and that that sort of caused the doctrine of annihilationism and conditionalism to um, get squashed down again and, and become an extreme minority. Another factor is in the 1800s, um, Christians from a variety of denominations when they became convinced of this view, many of them were, were either forced out or felt compelled to leave their congregations. That's not something that we at Rethinking Hell encourage people to do. We think you should stay in your congregations, provided they permit you to be a part of it. Don't cause waves. This is a secondary issue we don't have to divide over. But in the 1800s, many people who were held to this, who became convinced of this view, were forced out of their churches. And a one place that a lot of these people, these a lot of these Christians from a variety of denominations went was to what's known as the Millerite movement, the um, uh, the restorationist movement. You know, there are a number of different terms that it goes by. And if you think of that movement like a branching tree, in the late 1800s and into the 1900s, it started to branch off. And some of those branches are the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh Day, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are cult is a cult, and the Seventh Day Adventists for a long time were considered a cult, and so for a lot of evangelicals, they've just been taught that the only people who question, you know, the only people who hold this view, are Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Seventh Day Adventists, not realizing that they got their view from Christians. 
<laughs> so on top of the two factors I mentioned a moment ago, you've also got this factor that we annihilationists are seen as cultists because people only think about Jehovah's Witnesses and, 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 um, and uh, Seventh-day Adventists when they think about this view. And I'll give one last reason, and then I'll stop blabbering on. Um, <laughs> You're good. There's an extreme amount of social and professional pressure within uh, conservative Christianity not to even consider an alternative to the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, there are countless churches all around this country where you couldn't, not only could you not be on staff and, uh, you know, uh, um, part of the pastorate or anything like that, you couldn't even be a member. In fact, my best friend was kicked out of a church. They wouldn't even let him attend, let alone be a member, because he became convinced of this view while he was there. The same is true of schools. There are a lot of seminaries around this country where not only can you not teach, you can't even be a student. I remember when I, before I went to Liberty, I reached out to SES, Southern Evangelical Seminary, asking them um, if a, a, a conditionalist or an annihilationist could, could attend, could get a degree there. And they said no. So you can't. So, so you got this incredible pressure. You're going to lose a job. You're going to lose opportunities mm. to study. You're going to be kicked out of churches, all because you don't uphold, toe the party line, uphold this traditional dogma about mm. eternal torment. And so, um, a lot of people won't even give annihilationism a, sec a, a, a genuine hearing, because if they do, they might risk losing their very livelihoods and their very relationships. In fact, if you ask people in academia who hold my view, probably not Randall Rouser, because he's in a little bit more of an open environment. But if you were to ask Preston Sprinkle, if you were to ask John Stackhouse, these, these academics would tell you there are lots of people they know in academia who've told them they either can't tell people what they believe about this because they'd lose their, lose their livelihoods or they have to not even consider the alternative for fear of becoming convinced and then losing their livelihoods. So there's this incredible pressure on so many levels um, that is forcing people to not be willing to really reconsider this topic. And so that's a whole slew of reasons I've given you why this is a minority view. Um, and I'm doing everything I can to sort of change that dynamic. Yeah, man, some really interesting stuff you bring up, and I appreciate you uh, fighting for what you believe in, fighting what you believe is the truth, because it is kind of sad to hear about some of these seminaries who won't hire people or maybe even fire people um, for, for holding well, Or won't even let you be a student there. Or even be a student, exactly. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I lost a tremendous amount of respect for Southern Evangelical Seminary. SES, I, I think they should be ashamed of themselves for not letting students even be conditionalists. I think that's messed up. Yeah, I think that's definitely oh, that's something. Yeah. Um, let's, let's go to one more question here. Simple question. For someone who is interested in annihilationism perspective and they want some resources, what are some resources you recommend to, to look into this topic? If anybody's um, got the um, the time and the uh, the literacy to be able to understand a fairly academic book, then I would encourage them to get the latest edition of Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes. That remains the definitive work in defense of this view. Um, if they want something a little bit lighter reading, uh, Edward Fudge also published a popular level book called Hell, colon, A Final Word. And that's a good book as well. Um, 
we, if, if you want to hear from a variety of evangelical voices, people could get the first book that we at Rethinking Hell published. It's called Rethinking Hell, <clears throat> excuse me, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. You can get it from Amazon on Kindle or in paperback. And it's got uh, excerpts from John Stott, John Wenham, Stephen Travis, uh, Edward Fudge, um, and a host of others. E. Earl Ellis, it goes on and on and on. Um, so that would be a helpful book as well. The The website, RethinkingHell.com, is a great resource. Um, the podcast, which you can find on iTunes uh, or any other podcatcher, just look up Rethinking Hell, is a great podcast. We've recently started a weekly YouTube live stream, Mondays at, uh, I, I said recently, it's actually been 40 weeks, so I guess it's not recently <laughs> any longer. Um, but Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. And if you go to youtube.com slash rethinking hell, you can find all the past episodes there. Um, and, uh, and and there's a Rethinking Hell Facebook discussion group that would probably be a great place for people to go as well. Um, just look for Rethinking Hell, find the discussion group, join it. And as long as you can answer the questions, yes, we'll be let in. And that's a great place to run your questions by people who hold to the various views of hell, because that's one thing that we really are passionate about. We don't want to do theology in a vacuum. We want to do it in community. And so we're big about having the dialogue with people who hold to every view of hell. And so if people come to the Rethinking Hell Facebook group, they can talk to others about their questions, push back on some of us They think if they think we're wrong, all those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I would start with those resources. Yeah, good stuff, man. A lot of, a lot of interesting things to definitely dive into. We'll go into a couple questions, uh, kind of some fun stuff. No one trying to like crucify you here on your beliefs um they fail at it anyway so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> i like the confidence i really like the confidence uh nick quiet here how's it going nick he says you should team up with that nick guy no idea who that nicky talking about is and <laughs> says to the to bait braxton hunter and eric hernandez on the soul and hell yeah, so this is Nick Quint. He's a good buddy of mine. He um, he was a contributor to the Rethinking Hell ministry for a while, and then he moved on to bigger and better things. Um, he uh, he and I have talked with Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett about doing like a two-on-two -two debate, not on hell. Um, I'm not sure, Nick, why you felt the need to mention hell, because Braxton, I, he won't debate us on hell. He knows that he'll get his butt whooped. Um, now, Eric Hernandez might, but if you want to debate the soul, namely the intermediate state, that would be a fun debate to have. Um, for those of you who don't know this, Nick and I are what are called physicalists. We don't think that human beings have immaterial souls that remain conscious in death, but but that's a separate issue from what happens in hell after the resurrection. And yeah, man, Braxton and Eric, I would love to, for Nick and, and me to, uh, to debate you, love to make it happen, especially since I I'm now part of the faculty there at Trinity. It would be a great place, a great venue for your, for our students uh, to um, to see that debate take place. So, yeah, man, I was say that would be a really interesting debate. Uh, ben Davidson, this guy's really, really coming after your throat here. Um, I, I saw what else he said, so I know who Ben is. Uh, but he says, for, question for Chris: When did you stop believing in the Bible? Yeah, that obviously that's tongue in cheek. No, the the whole point <laughs> is that for me, um, as I explained it was my commitment to scripture and it is my commitment to scripture that forces me to hold this view. Believe me, being not only am I conservative, but I'm also reformed. And as we've already discussed, the reformed are not particularly friendly to this view. It would be so much easier for me in terms of ministry, in terms of academia, even uh, in terms of church and relationships. If I could go back to holding the doctrine of eternal torment again, I'm just too committed to the Bible to, to do that. Uh, a question in here from Air Church, just probably the last question. Uh, he said, why do you think e eternal torment is the most favorite doctrine among atheists? 
I think it's because it's the Christian doctrine that is that they that they, that comes across as the most obviously human invented by human beings and um, archaic and Byzantine and outdated, right? Um, it, it it's the kind of thing that sounds made up, um, and so on top of sounding like it's made up and archaic, it also seems to these atheists to be inconsistent with the character of God that we Christians tell them, want them to believe, right? So if you listen to, like for all four of the new, the horsemen of new atheism, Dan Dennett, um, uh, 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 Richard Dawkins, Chris Hitchens, and um, Shermer, I think is the other guy. Anyway, all of them have made statements to the effect of eternal torment is, is a big reason not to believe in Christianity. So that's why I think that eternal torment is the most favorite one for them to talk about is because it's low-hanging fruit. You can easily make Christianity out to, to be dumb by saying it's got this doctrine of eternal torment in it. Now, we conditionalists and annihilationists obviously don't have that same problem. And, I, and I'll tell you this, I actually think that the gospel, when presented in, in by a conditionalist, is actually going to even have more teeth. It's going to be more effective. And here's why. It's not because it doesn't involve eternal torment. It's because the atheist already thinks that he's going to die and never experiencing anything ever again, and he's terrified of it. You know why I know why I know he's terrified of it because so many people throughout the world are pouring so much money into um, ways of accomplishing immortality through technology. Whether we're talking cryogenic freezing or digitization of consciousness or artificial bodies, we're pouring countless millions of dollars into that industry in the hope that we might one day be able to um, uh, accomplish immortality. We desperately want to go on living. Now, mind you, that would be a really abysmal immortality because only the rich are going to be able to afford it. So, you know, you've got the have-nots and the haves right now. Well, when the haves can afford immortality, but the have-nots can't, you know, you're just going to have a bunch of rich jerks around, right? But when Christ returns and immortalizes the saved and God obliterates all sin, gets rid of all sin from the cosmos forever, life will go on forever and it will be absolutely joyous and blissful. There won't be class warfare. There won't be racism. There won't be, uh, there won't be um, poverty. There won't be uh, oppression. All of that stuff will be gone and we will get to live forever in abject bliss. And I think that's so, so, so the doc, so when you present the, the gospel as a conditionalist, you not only resonate with their fear of death that they already have, but you also offer them the life that they are so desperately looking to have, provided they're willing to give up their own prideful selfishness and um, subject themselves to the living God. And I think that's a pretty amazing gospel to share. Yeah, man, this has been a really good conversation. I've really enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed learning from you, obviously. A lot, a lot of interesting things to think about here uh, regarding this doctrine. I'm looking forward to you debating Ross Burns on Tuesday here on this channel. Um, any closing thoughts as we wrap things up here? Um, the, the only closing thought I would offer is I hope that those of your listeners or, or viewers who are watching and who aren't convinced, and, and, and I don't think they should be convinced. Nobody should watch a one hour long interview with somebody like me. Uh, has it been an hour, an hour and a half? Anyway, whatever it's been, uh, and, and, and come away with a changed mind. That's not enough time to do this topic justice. But if people are intrigued and just not convinced yet, 
what they should be convinced of after hearing um, this interview is that a, a person can believe in conditionalism or annihilationism and still be every bit as much conservative as they are, every bit as committed to the authoritative and inerrant, inerrant word of God as they are. Um, we, cannot, we can hold up all the same essentials of the Christian faith. We just differ on this issue, and that's no reason to treat each other poorly or to divide from one another. Let's, let's, let's unite on our agreement on the essentials of the faith and be charitable to one another and tolerate our differences on the non-essentials. And then we'll be able to go out and take the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it arm in arm rather than eating at each other's throats. Hmm. Man, I think at the end of the day, this is a conversation typically held within brethren. I think obviously you're other in Christ. I honestly, I'm, I'm not, like eternal conscious torment and necessarily I'm kind of not sure where I'm at, but I do think that we can make mistakes when we exclude people for certain beliefs, such as annihilationism uh, as brothers in Christ. Cause I think it's a really important conversation, man. Uh, appreciate your knowledge. Really, really interesting conversation. A lot of things to think about. And I encourage people to look into these things further. I know I am. Um, if you're new to here in apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe, like this video. You can follow us on Twitter at Eternal apologetics. You can go to Eternal apologetics on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. And if you enjoy the show, you can support the show at patreon.com slash adhereandapologetics. Chris, it's been a really good conversation, man. I've really appreciated it. Again, it's been my pleasure and honor. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, man. Anytime.